Welcome to Moments in Transformation, the podcast brought to you by the In Transformation Initiative, ITI, the peace building project founded in South Africa, taking the lessons learned here and applying them to other mediation, negotiation and peace building efforts around the world. We'll offer you an insider's view of the negotiation process firsthand, the moments of drama, tension and breakthrough told by the very people who were there. I'm Karen Allen, your host for this podcast series, and I'm delighted to be joined by two ITI directors and veterans of South Africa's own liberation struggle. Mohamed Baba, a former member of parliament, an attorney and a seasoned negotiator, and Geoffrey Deutsch, also a former member of parliament who went on to become a highly accomplished diplomat, representing South Africa across a number of Asian countries, including Sri Lanka, as High Commissioner there where he was instrumental in helping to jumpstart the negotiation process. Welcome to both of you, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. The focus of today's podcast is Sri Lanka, where ITI, the In Transformation Initiative, picked up the baton in 2013 at a time when previous efforts by other organisations, including IDASA, the Institute for Democracy in South Africa, had run their course. The aim was now to try to get the Tamil Tigers, the majority Sinhalese government and the official opposition, the United National Party, together using the experience of the democratic transition in South Africa to leverage support. But before we delve into the detail and ITI's unique role, let's first get a little background on Sri Lanka's troubled past. After 1972, when what was formerly called Ceylon became a republic and was renamed Sri Lanka, ethnic tensions between the Tamil minority and the majority Sinhalese erupt into all-out civil war, which sees the creation of the Tamil Tigers, or LTTE, in 1976. A long war spanning several decades ensues, pitting the Sri Lankan army and the separatist Tamil Tigers against one another. It's an extremely violent period, capturing international headlines, characterised by assassinations, atrocities on all sides and a number of stalled diplomatic attempts to restore peace. By 2002, a ceasefire has collapsed and fighting resumes in the northeast. And by 2009, the Tigers pledged to finally lay down their arms. And a year later, Parliament has approved amending the constitution to favour President Mahinda Rajapaksa of the Sinhalese majority government to seek unlimited terms in office. Hard truths emerge as the Sinhalese government, under pressure from the UN, is shamed into acknowledging the disappearance of some 65,000 people during the civil war, making the call for some kind of truth and reconciliation commission along the South African lines one of the key negotiating positions. So by the time ITI gets directly involved in Sri Lanka, the Tamil Tigers are slowly beginning to engage in a society where more than two generations of Sri Lankans have known little more than war. So let's pick up from there. Um, Ambassador, High Commissioner Doidge, I should say, or we're very informal here. You're allowing me to call you Geoffrey, if I may. Let's start with you. Please set the scene for us in Sri Lanka in 2013. What was life like for ordinary people? Because, of course, the war had ended in 2009. I had the advantage of arriving in 2011, March 2011. And uh, as a diplomat, you go through the formalities of presenting your credentials uh, to the president. And uh, you have a brief audience with the head of state. 
and you convey uh, messages of uh, goodwill and uh, diplomatic uh, um, greetings to the head of state from your head of state. And uh, if you use your time optimally, you can smuggle in a few uh, political messages, which I did. And I did say that uh, South Africa would like to extend a hand of friendship to the government and would like to share some of our own experiences in their own transition. And how was that received? I mean, at the moment when you made that comment, was it, was it welcomed in a polite diplomatic way or did you feel that there was a, a moment of entry, if you like? It, it was sort of in the last few seconds of my 10 minutes. The response was, um, we'd like to learn more about uh, South African experience and um, see what it can offer us. Uh, there wasn't an admission of any sort at the time about anything that happened, but it was acknowledged. And I felt comfortable that um, I had uh, I'd set the scene at that particular level. And as um, I began to settle in in my posting, I began to realize that given the mandate of high commissioners or ambassadors, and this applies to us all, we are bound by certain conventions and certain codes of conduct. And we may not transgress those, otherwise we might upset the bilateral relations mm -hmm. between the countries. The important thing to remember was that the war ended in 2009. The country was very divided. There was a huge uh, trust deficit throughout the country amongst all, all the groups. And whilst the conflict might have happened between the Buddhist majority, the Singhalese, and the Tamil uh, community, mainly based in the north. One should not forget the Muslim community, which was based in the northeast, and were also victims of the conflict that happened in, in many different ways and were also uh, displaced. And one could sense the tension in the country, the no-go areas. As a diplomat, I would have to apply to go to Jaffna and, and get permission from the Secretary of Defence. This was the area occupied by the, or had previously been the Tamil Territory. Yes, and these were occupied. Yes. The northern part of Sri Lanka and the northeast mm -hmm. were occupied by the military forces in 2011, yet the war ended in 2009. And many of those areas are still no-go areas up until today. Mm -hmm. So one had to bear in mind that you, you couldn't move um, freely throughout the country. There were huge restrictions. There was an act in place called the PTA, which was which defined people as terrorists if they were found to be uh, delving into politics that were unsuitable, unpalatable to the government of the day. Yeah. And, but I must give the government of the day some credit that they were open to listening. But I soon realized that even that space that I had won for South Africa needed more capacity, it needed different kinds of expertise, and it needed a, a, a more focus in terms of what exactly have we got to offer a country that's deeply in trouble. And I thought to myself that this is where we could uh, play a role. We must also bear in mind that within South Africa, we have a huge Tamil community. Exactly. And there are very strong links between the Tamil community of South Africa, not only with India, but also with Sri Lanka. Mm -hmm. And there are solidarity groups within South Africa. One in particular is a solidarity group for justice and peace in Sri Lanka. 
very well organized, very well uh, structured, and we also interacted with them. So we took into account civil society within South Africa, and we took into account the Tamil diaspora, global yes. Tamil diaspora. And so that we were not going in on one ticket or one side of the conflict, yes. and we would have lost credibility had we not straddled both the victor and the vanquished. With the permission of uh, the powers that be, uh, I got permission that we would utilize uh, ITI and their resources, their expertise to come in. And if I may, I'd like to bring in Mohammed Baba, your ITI colleague, um, a very important part of that reservoir of, of knowledge and experience at, at ITI. Um, because, Mohammed, you were also involved uh, with Jeffrey in the Sri Lankan project, for want of a better word, as far as ITI was concerned. Um, once ITI got involved in 2013, you reached a position, and I'm going to get you to help me with this, when there was an important moment in Singapore when a document was drawn up um, by both sides, effectively a wish list of what a future Sri Lanka might look like, which embodied the idea of constitutionalism, institutes that reflect the pluralist character of Sri Lankan society, secularism and a parliamentary democracy. It sounds very much like South Africa's transition. How much, when you came into the project, did um, the Sri Lankans lean on the South African experience and talk to you as a, as, as, as a South African national? There's two dimensions to this. The one is that uh, Ambassador Deutsch, because of his understanding of the South African situation, was able to sense the nuances in Sri Lankan mm -hmm. society. And he had then laid the groundwork. So by the time we got to Singapore, he had already briefed us on some of the intricacies and some of the uh, ambiances and mm -hmm. atmosphere that doesn't quite reflect on paper. Yeah. And that comes with experience. And of course, Ambassador Deutsch went through with us with the, with the South African experience. So that helped a lot. The second dimension was a lack of alignment between the expectations of the diaspora mm -hmm. and what the reality was in Sri Lanka. So when you arrive, you've got this great mismatch between what the diaspora is expecting and what's... Absolutely. And I think it's important to know that the Tamil community that had exiled itself from Sri Lanka over the years had become both academically and in the financial world very, very successful mm -hmm. and very influential mm -hmm. to the extent where they were able to lobby in some of the highest corridors of power, including Congress. Yes. Some of their lobbying and the kind of objectives they had in from their lobbying wasn't quite reflective of what the solution would be yeah. because they were not living through it. This is a typical diaspora experience. It sounds very common, exactly. Common. Yeah. So Ambassador Deutsch had done a lot of the groundwork in Sri Lanka while we had to go to the corridors of the diaspora power, that means London and so forth, and yes. some very, very uh, influential and vocal people. And we had to constrain their expectations yeah. and bring that alignment. You see, diaspora, uh, uh, we have a tendency to say, this is a sellout, this guy is not pushing, but it's, 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 it's bereft of the reality that takes place yeah, on the ground. So your, your job was to try and win over the diaspora community? First and of all, unite them because they were not homogenous either. Mm. There were hardliners there, there were people who were a lot more 
uh, pragmatic, uh, realistic. So we had to get in alignment within them first. Yes. And then from there, align them with some of the Tamil formations within within Sri Lanka. So this is reminds me of some of the um, other engagements, the other case studies, if you like, where one of the key principles of ITI is that you need to basically have um, one voice in terms of one side of the negotiation table, if you like, that you need to have those disparate communities. And we talked in the past about Palestine, didn't we, Mohammed? Um, you need to be able to bring those voices together. And that sounds like very much what the task was in terms of bringing the Tamil diaspora and the Tamil community within uh, Sri Lanka together. Absolutely. Why then, um, Jeffrey, why was Singapore so important? It was, it was a turning point. Uh, at that particular time. You'd brought both sides together at this time? Well, it happened in Singapore. Mm-hmm. That, that, and it was a very confidential, uh, secret almost, uh, meeting that happened in Singapore because um, the left hand didn't need to know the, where the right hand was going kind of thing. It was, it, was really, it was really a sensitive meeting and it needed a country like Singapore close proximity, but also not, you know, it wouldn't be in the media the next day kind of thing. But the difficulty also was, how do you get the Tamil diaspora to recognize what was then the Tamil National Alliance, a political party representing the people and aspirations of the Tamil people, and they were elected to parliament? very much the same as South Africa went through in our transition where you had the House of Representatives, the House of Delegates, the House of Assembly. And we that were, as the ANC were saying, there were sellouts. What are you doing? We used that experience to say, you've got a voice in Parliament. How do you utilize this as, as as a form of leverage? You've got a voice where it's very critical. Without this voice, and you need to recognize them and and so we had to play that role as well. We we had to then uh, build that trust. Were the different sides together in the same room, or was this literally what we now call in the media shuttle diplomacy? That you'd have one um, one group, the Tamils in one room, uh, the Tamil MPs in another room, and the Sinhalese government in a third room. Or by this stage, were they all speaking together under the same roof? Because we had government, South African government had kept out of what they had mandated ITI to do. The highest representation we had at a particular time was uh, Deputy Minister Mfegeto, Deputy Minister of Derko at the time, attended a meeting in the UK with the Global Tamil Forum and other uh, diaspora Mm -hmm. formations. But we we kept government out of it so that it would be... and, And the Tamil diaspora had maximum trust in ITI. So we left it to ITI okay. and we kept government out of it because we needed to, to be a bit, a bit independent from the ITI role. And that's, that's, that's what the relationship between uh, Durko and, and ITI, that's what makes us so unique as ITI because we have the confidence of, exactly. of Durko. And, and we were then able to play that role where we could have high-level meetings in one room with both sides, representatives of both sides. Access was absolutely key. And I know on the Sri Lankan government side, um, your main 
point of contact wasn't the president, but it was his younger brother, who was Secretary of Defence at the time, Gotabaya Rajapaksa, who would later become president. In fact, he's the current president as I speak to you today. Did you get a sense at that point that there was a, a sense of um, equality between the government and between the Tamil side in terms of their appetite for, for talks? Government listened and understood what needed to be done. But you have to remember that they are politicians. And any decision you take has political consequences. And the risks of those consequences far outweighed the, the, what they knew had to be done. So it ended up not being done. And that's what complicated the things on government side. On the other side, you had a lot of aspirations, some of them unrealistic, not achievable, but they were expressing certain desires. We, we had to listen to that and, and, and break it down into what would the principles be of this messaging that we are, we are hearing and how would we fit that into this format that we are trying to deal with and make it palatable to the political and, and side, which is the government. Fortunately, because of my position, again, as diplomat, I had access to the president. Mm -hmm. I had access to Gotabaya uh, Rajapaksa, who then was the secretary for the, uh, I think they call it of defense. We call it for defense. Mm -hmm. um, and literally the um, advisors on both, to both those principles. I was warned by the former U.S. ambassador that when you meet with the secretary, of defense. He'll speak all the time for all 20 minutes you've been allocated and you won't get a word in. Well, my meeting with him was totally different. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's the way we started the discussion. Mm -hmm. And um, I got to understand they are thinking from a military perspective. And I got to understand the political thinking from the president's perspective. But it was a difficult relationship to straddle. But I think we were able to get them to understand that we are not the enemy. The Human Rights Council in Geneva is looming. You've got issues there. Mm -hmm. it's, it's February. It's March. March is when the Human Rights Council sit and you, you have a second round of problems in September. You need to get the messaging out. So you literally got to play a little bit of devil's advocate. Yeah. Yeah. The timing is right for you to your messaging to go out that you're talking to somebody. Was there a unique position that you found yourself in, Mohammed, as a as, you, as a Muslim South African, um, in terms of being able to get the ear of some of the people who otherwise may have been sidelined? Not as a Muslim South African, but as an understanding. If we recall that the period in which we were there, there were certain international events taking place. It was the rise of Al Qaeda. So if let me try and answer the question mm -hmm. that in, in terms of a collective. Uh, one is that what was the incentive for the Rajapaksas to come into this negotiation? And I think Ambassador Deutsch has alluded to that. That my own impression, and this was purely my personal observation, was that I think the president at the time felt very aggrieved that he wasn't appreciated by the world for the, for the, for the measures he has yeah. taken. And he was uh, quite aggrieved that he, uh, Sri Lanka was the pariah of the world. Because and of the human rights abuses absolutely. that have been reported. And it was his generals who were basically... Absolutely. Secondly, the, as, as, as Ambassador Deutsch has said, there was the sword hanging over him 
with the Human Rights Council. And there was a palpable fear that he may have to face the ICC. Mm -hmm. It gave us leverage in the sense that we could assist him in getting the correct approach, the correct optics, and make the correct, take the correct measures to, 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 to alleviate that pressures that were put on him. So it was part of his own image. Yes. Secondly, the very real threat to him. And that was the, uh, the, the incentive. As far as the Muslim community was concerned, I remember having a discussion. Was the deputy president Muslim, uh, Ambassador Deutsch? Or was one of the deputy ministers that we had a discussion with? It was a minister. It was a Rao minister. Mm -hmm. That's right. Yes. And I, I remember telling him that whatever credibility you have will dissipate if you allow an external force to come in. Mm -hmm. Uh, they were busy in Iraq and they were busy everywhere else. So from the Muslim community, they understood that they needed to control their own fate. Mm -hmm. But it was also an incentive to, 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 to the Sri Lankan government as well. And managing some of those optics and managing some of those sort of external forces or external voices um, was, of course, Jeffrey, one of the difficult things that you had to do when there were visits across to South Africa. I think on one occasion, um, the head of the South African Human Rights Commission, Yasmin Suka, had wanted to perform a citizen's arrest on Rajapaksa's delegation because a number of his generals had been implicated in gross human rights violations. You must have been in such a difficult position because, you know, on the one hand, there are valid points that are being made, but you have to think of the long game. How did you manage that? It became a very difficult um, time for us because... Had that happened, uh, I would have literally had to go home and pack my bags and leave Sri Lanka. Firstly, we were surprised that the invitation was accepted. I started with the president first and I said, we'd like to invite your brother. And he said, yes. And um, I went to the brother and I said, um, I've informed uh, the president that I'm going to invite you, extending an invitation for you to come to South Africa. And he agreed. And... Um, he said he'd come in full military regalia, and I said, Ooh, "No, please, um, this is this is not a, a an official invitation from South African military. Uh, we'll have to pick you up at the apron in an unmarked vehicle, and so on and so on." And he looked at me very concerned and couldn't understand. You know, am I being taken through the back door? Um, and I said, um, um, "I explained why." Um, I couldn't tell him what was on the agenda here. But um, so we managed that side very carefully, very meticulously. Uh, which passport is he going to use? Uh, Sri Lankan or the American? Make sure all, yeah, you know, we had our ducks in a row. Um, whilst um, we understood the thinking of um, the leaders here in South Africa, what uh, should happen, and this was an opportunity, but we were making such good progress in Sri Lanka that this would have really just uh, been detrimental to the entire process and it would have really upset our relationship, bilateral relationships. So I had to manage that bilateral mm -hmm. risk as well, which I, is my responsibility and which I couldn't, I couldn't uh, lose a grip on that. We set the bar very high for that visit. We wanted to give a sense and experience that if you, if you abandon this militar, militaristic uh, uh, 
uh, view of how you're going to transform Sri Lanka into a particular state. Here's a different model mm -hmm. that can get the heat off you. You've got to do the work. You, you, you're going to have to make the changes. You'll have to do that yourself. But we want to expose you to a different way yeah. of, of achieving much outcome. better outcomes and objectives. The other route would have taken you down the tubes and you'd have had more pressure. But we had to demonstrate this. Now, how would we demonstrate this? We had to get one of the, the brothers here, the most critical, um, who was being implicated, all sorts of allegations. We don't know. Were they still untested? But we had to get that particular individual, and it had to be that person, to be exposed to the South African experience firsthand, which that visit actually did. And we achieved it, and there was a complete sea change. You're listening to the Moments in Transformation podcast with me, Karen Allen, and my guest, the former South African Ambassador, High Commissioner to Sri Lanka, uh, Jeffrey Deutsch, and fellow ITI director and seasoned negotiator and former politician, Mohamed Baba. Mohamed, can we pick up on one of the points that was being made um, just a moment ago by, by Jeffrey? And this is the idea of having to walk a very narrow course between the real politic of trying to get the right people across to see the South African experience, whilst at the same time being cognizant of the fact that there is there are a lot of questions hanging over, human rights-based questions, hanging over the heads of, of, of Sri Lankan leaders. I say this because obviously South Africa had the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, and I wondered at this point, had the conversations begun about a similar TRC being established in Sri Lanka and what sort of appetite was there for that? The first thing that's put on the table is the TRC and uh, it's a very dangerous thing to do because it must be placed within the context of an overall solution. Mm. So to separate the TRC from a constitutional solution will be seen as retribution yeah. and particularly amongst the diaspora understandably that they wanted accountability. Mm. And sometimes reconciliation and justice doesn't always go hand in hand. So, yes, we had to keep it on the agenda, but it was prioritizing some of the yes. issues. If we went for the TRC first, I don't think we would have had the confidence of, of the Rajapaksas and, and the Sri Lankan government. Uh, so it was a process. It was, we had, there was quite a, a certain degree of advocacy as well. Yeah. And again, uh, temper the expectations and emotions of people who were genuinely hurt in this conflict. There must have been moments when that's hard, when you're reading headlines in the newspapers or seeing them on the TV and you go to bed at night and thinking, am I really, I'm talking to these guys, am I really going to be on the right side of history? Did you ever have those moments, like either of you? I, uh, I think Rolf Meyer told me this once. It may not be him, but, you know, negotiators know a lot of people, but they don't make lots of friends. And uh, I, I think it's him who told me once, but uh, you have to keep the eye on the ball and you'll get a lot of criticism. I mean, how can you be sitting with, you know, all kinds of accusations that are made? But you have a task. Jeffrey, what about you? Well, someone has to do the dirty work. <laughs> and um, you, you, can't, you can't have a process where... Um, your principles or your values would would come first. You have to you have to be open. You have to have an open mind. There were things we didn't agree on in those meetings with either the president or the secretary of defense. 
with his intelligence chiefs, with his advisors, there were no-go areas, and we made it clear mm -hmm. that on this you can't rely, we can't depend on us or for our support. And I think this is to the credit of the South African team, if I can refer to it as that, both the diplomatic side and government and ITI, is that we were very clear that there are some non-negotiable areas. Can you give us some insight? What were your red lines? The human rights issues were, were uppermost in our minds. Um, and the long list that came out of the many meetings and workshops that we've had, missing people, livelihoods, people deprived of their livelihoods. So ITI came in almost in a, in a more balanced, they could, they could mobilize the international community in a way that government was a little bit restricted. Yeah. And we could talk about issues of livelihoods in the northern areas and northeastern areas. We could talk about development because you can do that if you are from a different organization than just government. Uh, we can't go and tell the president of Rajapaksa uh, what we think he must do in the north or build houses. No, you can't do that. So, so they, they, this is where it became a fine line, where, where to straddle both those. And it's very difficult. Yes, you do take criticism, but it was important for me as, and I would use both my diplomatic uh, uh, um, capacity and, and position, I would speak to religious leaders. I spoke to religious leaders, not only in the Mahinda Rajapaksa presidency, but in Ranil Wickremesinghe's prime minister yeah. tenure. I also spoke to religious leaders. In fact, he convened a meeting of literally all the religious leaders in, in Sri Lanka. And he was delayed at the meeting and he told me to proceed in his office without him until he came. And he arrived about 45 minutes late. And we had from... Catholics on the one side to um, every religion that exists in Sri Lanka. We're all in that room. And we spoke about the TRC yeah. and how they felt that they wanted to play a role in whatever truth-seeking mechanism was developed in Sri Lanka. And they wanted to have a compassion, what they called a compassionate council. So you had to speak to the religious leaders. They had to understand, why are you playing this role? Mm -hmm. And I'm Catholic, mm -hmm. so yeah. I would have to convince my leaders sitting there, why am I speaking to the Secretary of Defense? And then I would have to go and speak to the military. And the difficulty with, as, as Muhammad is saying, is that you can't just throw a TRC in. Do you think the government of Sri Lanka would want to expose or put on trial its own military, a sitting military? No, it wouldn't happen. So... You can't just throw the TRC in and think that, that's oh, a fix. One, that's one size fits all and it'll fix all the problems. It's what happens prior to that and post that. I want to pick up on and, and one of the, the human aspects, if you like, that you, you've just alluded to. And I know both of you had the opportunity to travel to the, when they opened up to the, to the northern areas and to go and talk to grassroots people, ordinary um, Sri Lankans living in areas that were still under occupation by the army. Just... Can you give a little bit of insight as to, you know, what, what that was like and the kinds of mistrust, if you like, that you sensed at that point when you were talking to ordinary people on the ground? Because, of course, one of ITI's key principles is to have engagement from the bottom up. Um, 
what sort of sense did you get? Was it did it feel like an occupying force? Did it feel like uh, there was a, a part of the government, or did it feel like it was part of a country which would have was effectively being forgotten as far as development was concerned? Just just give a little bit of a sense of that, both of you. When you visit the area, the first thing that strikes you is um, you feel this. There's an almost an abnormal feeling, and I'll use my wife Carol's uh, ex- uh, description of the area when we visited on a private visit, which. Very strangely, we were permitted to do. She said, you can sense the bloodshed in the north and the impact that it has on the people. So you could feel that there had been a lot of trauma in the area. The people were, are still traumatized in the north. They continue to be traumatized. The sense of deep loss, of not knowing what happened to your relatives, your loved ones, the lack of livelihoods, the lack of development. Mm-hmm. It has improved. It has improved. And drastically from where it was when we first visited the north, there have been major improvements in Sri Lanka. But you're not going to catch up with 30 years yeah. uh, of no development, devastation of a war, a very brutal war and think that you're going to recover in 10 years. But the sense of loss and not knowing is still in the uppermost minds of all the people in the North and the Northeast. That is, that is an unfinished element of this process. It has to be visited at some time, and it's, it's going to, in my mind, I'm, I'm seeing a move now in Geneva as we speak. Mm-hmm. We're back in the Human Rights Council session in March 2021, and it's going to haunt Sri Lanka for a long time to come. To add on to what uh, uh, Ambassador Deutsch says, we, we had a difficulty. The difficulty was that Rajapaksa, the Secretary of Military, looked at life through military solutions. Mm-hmm. So he may have thought he quelled the violence and, and the conflict through a military solution, but he somehow was at a loss when there's times of peace. Yeah. So you have a situation where I recall the figure is, is, is staggering, but it ran in the thousands of widows there mm-hmm. who were victims of that conflict mm-hmm. and were killed at the guns of, 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 of the Rajapaksa government. And you have an occupying force sitting there guarding so you can understand the dynamics. It, it was very suspicious. Yes. It, was, it wasn't good. And Rajapaksa, the Secretary of Defense, in his military mind, thought the solution was just building houses and, and development. Mm-hmm. And we had, to, we had the similar experience in South Africa where under the PW Buerta regime, uh, uh, a lot of resources were spent in the homelands thinking that he'll get traction and, and bulk trust. And I think we had to relate the South African experience to him and tell him that this isn't going to work. So fast forward to today, Jeffrey. I mean, Sri Lanka 10 years after the civil war is having to deal with a new threat, um, jihadist violence, although it's root in old problems. ITI is no longer um, working at the moment in Sri Lanka. When you look back... Is the country better off or worse off with ITI's intervention? If I look at what has been achieved by ITI, we certainly, when we started both as government 
um, as the embassy, I cluster that as government and ITI, we certainly changed the direction of Sri Lanka. The experience and the information and the knowledge that was shared might not have been heeded the way that we had intended it to. We, we thought we'd got some very important messaging across. But as Father Michael Lapsley says in his book, that if you don't heal the victim, they will become the victimizer. And this is what happened in Sri Lanka. The nationalists didn't heal. Mm -hmm. And there was a Buddhist uprising against the Muslim community. And that at one point got the blessing of the current president as, as a Buddhist himself. Mm -hmm. And that hurt the Muslim community post the conflict. And that was the beginning of this new cycle that, that has started in Sri Lanka. No sooner had that been brought under some control, but buried, not dealt with. Mm -hmm. And then we had what happened in, in the Catholic churches in Sri Lanka recently. The Cinnamon Grand Hotel, where we lived right next door to the Cinnamon Grand, and we knew some of the staff personally, and we'd see them on a regular basis because we're part of one complex. Carol and I visited there two years ago and were devastated to find out that half uh, the staff of the Cinnamon Grand had been killed in that bombing. And that was just one small part of what happened in Sri Lanka. We didn't have time to visit um, the other areas where the Catholic churches were bombed. So... Unless Sri Lanka deals with this past, unfortunately, this might be the pattern. We hope not, but it might be the pattern of things to come where you will find this spilling over into modern-day society. So that problem has to be fixed. This time around, it's not in the north. This time around, it's in the south, amongst their very own. But there is, there is something that has to be dealt with in that society. Mohammed Baba, Jeffrey Deutsch, gentlemen, thank you both very much indeed. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to Moments in Transformation, the podcast that takes a behind-the-scenes look at the world of international peacemaking as well as domestic conflict resolution brought to you by the In Transformation Initiative ITI. If you've enjoyed listening to this episode, then why not drop us a line to ivor, that's I-V-O-R, at intransformation.org.za. Thank you, and we look forward to you joining us for the next episode. Bye for now.